Good morning, everybody. It's nice to be in church and to be together as we worship the Lord. Uh, special greetings from Pastor Lou and Natasha. They're uh, actually ministering at a conference overseas. They'll be back in the country this coming week. I think this uh, Sunday, as it unfolds for them in six hours' time or so, Pastor Louis will be preaching about three times uh, during the course of the morning only, uh, just so that if we can remember to pray for them and, and bless them in that space. We're continuing today just with our series on, uh, about living on the front line, which is a kind of just a bit of a reminder of a series we did late 2021. Uh, so if you've joined us since then, please do look on our YouTube channel for that. We worked through this in quite a bit of detail, but we thought it would be good just to do a little mini-series on that, and Pastor Louis will wrap that up next week when he shares with us. But as we get into this morning, I want to start by asking you a question. What do you think it means to be a disciple in South Africa today? What does it mean to be a follower of Jesus in your space and in your place? What does that look like? And I want to pick right up as we begin answering that question and engaging with it, just where Ben uh, ended last week. So if you guys can put up the, the triangle. Uh, one of the things we say at Hatfield is if you want to be a disciple, you have to do the triangle well. But a whole life disciple is someone that lives a up in and an out life. And if you didn't catch Ben's message last week, please do so. It's really foundational. I'm not going to re-preach it. But what I do want to do this morning is focus a little bit on the bottom right uh, side of that triangle, on the out Element, And we're going to look there particularly, uh, Ben mentioned last week, just around the embrace for God so loved the world that he gave his only son, Jesus, and God, God through Jesus loved the world and he gave his son. And I think that's really a focus on the people of the world. And so there's this embrace where because God loves the world, I want to reach out and love the world and bring God's grace and love and compassion into as many places and spaces as I can. But as you'll see, we don't only embrace the world, we also need to be distinct from the world. And I'm probably going to talk a little bit more about that this morning. Before we move on from the slide, just because I'm going to talk about it a little bit later, please notice that the heart of everything, right in the center of that triangle, is the love of God. Our love, the love of God motivates everything we do. But I want to come back and just help us understand a little bit about this world that we live in that we need to be distinct from. And I thought to read a scripture in John chapter 17, it's just where Jesus prays for us. It's in the section of Jesus' last prayer on just the night before he dies. And one of the things he does is he prays for all future generations of believers. So Jesus prays for you. How's that? Not bad. Jesus prays for you. And as part of that prayer, he prays and he talks about our relationship, our out relationship with the world. And he says in John 17 verse 14 and 15, I have given them, my disciples, I've given them your word, and the world has hated them. For they are not of the world any more than I am of the world. My prayer is not that you take them out of the world, but that you protect them from the evil one. Jesus prayed and he specifically said that we cannot be taken out of the world. Jesus wants us to be in the world that he loves. But he does pray that we're protected. And so always remember that. Jesus prayed that you're protected. How's that? It's better than a pastor laying hands and praying. Jesus prayed that for you specifically. And so the way we say that is, is that we're in the world, but we're not of it. We're in the world, but we're not of it. Sometimes, and I don't know how helpful this analogy is, it's a bit like a fish in water. The fish doesn't know it's surrounded by water. It's just the normal place and space that it lives in. And the world system that we live in and interact with and engage with every day is like that water around us. 
But Jesus says, while we're in this water of the world system, we must remember that we're not of it. And so it's almost to me like we breathe a different air. Now, I know we don't really. I'm just doing an analogy. Is that okay? But as believers, we live in this world surrounded by the world system, but we breathe a different air. We breathe the air of the kingdom. We breathe the air of the gospel. We breathe the air of the scriptures that bring life and tell us how to live. We breathe the air that we get from our communion and our relationship and from our community of other believers. We're in the world, but not of it. And as we engage in the world, just to highlight what I said a little bit earlier, we're always motivated by love. So even though I'm distinct and though I'm not of it, and I'm actually, you'll see a little bit later, in opposition to it, and I'm not fully part of it and embrace everything in it, I'm always motivated by God's love for the world. It's that heartbeat of the triangle. And to that end, uh, the text I want to focus on this morning and just work through a little bit and apply it as we go is in the Ephesians chapter 5. We're going to read a couple of verses in that chapter. So if you have a Bible or a device, you're really welcome to turn there. It will also come up on the screens for your convenience. We're going to read the first two verses, then we're going to drop down to around verse, well, to verse 15. Paul's writing to the Ephesians, and they're also living in the same world. They're breathing this different air and oxygen, and how do they do that uh, to live in God's kingdom? Paul writes to them, and he says, you follow God's example. It's very important as a believer and as a follower of Jesus. We follow God's example. Therefore, as dearly loved children, live a life of love. Just as Christ loved us and gave himself for us as a fragrant offering, and a sacrifice. We've celebrated that or we've remembered that, we've marked that in communion, the sacrifice of Jesus. But Paul writes to the believers in Ephesus and he says that you need to live this life of love. But before he says that, he says these really important words that we also need to hear, as dearly loved children. You are loved. I am loved. We are loved more than we can imagine. Earlier on in the letter in Ephesians chapter three, Paul says, you need the power of the Spirit just to grasp how much God loves you, how high and deep and wide the love of God is. But we are loved more than we can imagine. And because we're loved, we're called to go and live a life of love in the world. We drop down to verse 15 of Ephesians chapter 5. As we live this life of love, Paul says, be very careful then how you live, not as unwise but as wise, making the most of every opportunity because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the Lord's will is. Paul admonishes us, he encourages us to live this life of love, but we need to be wise, we need to be careful because we're living in a certain context. This life of love we call to live happens within the world system. I'm encouraged because Paul notes that the days are evil. And I, I tend to read the news um, a lot, not obsessively, I'm healthy, okay, but I read a lot, I like to know what's going on. And you just open a news app, you look anywhere, the days are evil. And the danger for us as believers is we start focusing on the evil days. But that's not what Paul says in this passage, he says, make the most of every opportunity. Because the days are evil, we need to walk around and go, Lord, the days are evil, but wow, show me opportunity for your kingdom. Show me opportunity for your gospel. We need to not be intimidated by the evil around us. We need to, in a sense, 
be excited by the opportunities it may create for us. So how you live really, really matters to God. Paul tells the Ephesians to live this life of love. How you live your whole life matters to God. God's not only interested in your spiritual life or in your life on a Sunday morning, God is interested in your whole life. And how you live that life matters a lot to God. He tells us to live wisely. He tells us to make the most of every opportunity and to understand his will. Now, we're not going to look at this morning, but in the very next verse, he says, do not be drunk with wine, but be filled with the Spirit. Part of understanding God's will, part of living the life of love, part of living wisely is that you are empowered by the Holy Spirit of God, that you be filled with the Spirit of God that animates you and empowers you to engage in your front line. And so this morning I thought to title my sermon, What Happens When Your Front Line Is Babylon? We'll talk about what I mean by that shortly, but what happens when your front line is Babylon? And we can look a little bit, just by way of broad overview in the books of Daniel and from the Apostle John in the book of Revelation, just some things that Daniel and John learned and recorded for us about how we can live when our front line is Babylon. So just a reminder, your front line our friends at ILICC define it very simply but very clearly. They tell us that the front line, front lines are the places and spaces we spend time doing the things we normally do, often with people who don't know Jesus. Your front line is the places and spaces you just come across as you live your life normally. As you're a disciple of Jesus, wherever you are, driving in the shopping centers, at work, with your family at home, engaging with your friends, that is a front line. Now, I want to acknowledge that front line is quite a militaristic, military-toned concept, isn't it? And the reality is, it's true, we are at a war in the places of our front lines. But the campaign we wage, the way we win this war, is a campaign of love, not of violence. It's a campaign where we live the life of love that Paul admonishes us to live by the Holy Spirit, so that we can engage appropriately in our front lines, because God also loves the world. What do I mean by Babylon? Now, I'm sure that got a lot of you going. I'm not meaning the conspiracy theories and things like that. Babylon in the Bible is the concept that the biblical authors, particularly after the time of Daniel and in Daniel's time, they use this concept to explain the evil or to refer to the evil world system. So later on in the Bible, when uh, the Apostle John writes the book of Revelation from uh, really about chapter 16, 17, 18, in that section, he talks a lot about Babylon. He's talking about the evil world system. The concept starts in Daniel chapter 2, where King Nebuchadnezzar, who was the king of Babylon, was given a vision of a statue. And in that statue, he saw four successive world empires that would come, that would ultimately get crushed by a rock not made of human hands that represents God's kingdom. This is very important to remember. The world will set up empires. The world will set up kingdoms. But the kingdom of God will overcome them all in the end. And that kingdom, we'll talk a little bit about it later. But in this, the vision's really about the, the, the kingdoms that will rule until the Messiah comes, until Jesus comes. But the head of the statue is made of gold. The head of the statue is, called, is representing Babylon. And so the head in ancient times, more so than, much, much more so than today, always spoke of the, the source of origin, the origin of a thing. Where did it come from? The head of something was its start, its beginning. 
And so Babylon is the head of, this, of all the world empires. And so later on, as we go into the Bible, Babylon becomes the symbol, the word used to describe all the ungodly empires, all the world, evil of the world system. I want to say I'm using the word evil intentionally because sometimes we become quite comfortable with the world system and we don't see it for what it is, that it is actually evil. And so part of what I am doing this morning is wanting to just remind you that the world system we live in is evil. It is not for us, it is against us. Even in 1 Peter 5, Peter writes and he says to those, and he uses this phrase, to those living in Babylon, and he's probably referring to Rome of his day. So even the apostle Peter picks up on this language for us. So the world system is the system that is always in opposition to God's kingdom. It's always trying to assert itself above God's kingdom. And so when any world system, government, country, form of rule starts becoming the ultimate value or asserting itself in a place where it thinks it's the ultimate power, that world system stands in opposition to God. And ultimately, it will always oppress the people of God. In Daniel's day, Babylon oppressed the Jewish people. In John's day, the empire of Rome, the Roman Empire, oppressed the Christian believers in the church. The world system always leads to oppression of the people of God. Sometimes that's subtle by making you so busy that the things of life and faith become unimportant. Sometimes it's just, really, you're still a Christian? Wow, I thought you'd moved on. You know, it's that subtle thing that mocks something we hold dear. It's a thing that starts saying you can't speak freely about your religion. That's more subtle. But it also can become overt where Christians are killed and arrested for being and believing, for being Christians and believing in Jesus. So in one sense, all of our front lines are in Babylon. Did you know that? Your front line is part of the world system. And so you are living in the water. You are surrounded by Babylon. Don't get scared. Okay. And so there's a real sense, and we're going to look at some principles that will help us engage in this evil world system. But I know that some of you live in spaces that are particularly evil. You, you're the one who comes when we, when we pray in front to the leaders and the pastors and you say, you don't understand what's happening on my front line because it's really bad. In Revelation chapter 2, verse 13, uh, Jesus pens a letter through John to the church in Pergamum, Pergamum and he says there, I know you live where Satan has his throne. That's like super scary. Now, he's probably referring to the temple of Zeus that was in the city, and Zeus being the chief god, and, and so just it was part of what was happening in the time. But some of you feel like your front lines, the devil lives there. Anybody? I'm hearing some amens. Okay. I've got some, some advice for you today, I trust. Okay. But what is very important, whether your front line is subtly influenced by Babylonian thinking and by Babylonian systems and by the evil world empire, or whether it's really confrontational and in your face. This is very important to remember. The world, the evil world, is not your friend. James chapter 4, the evil world is not your friend. James chapter 4 and verse 4, he writes and he says, you adulterous people, people who started worshiping idols, engaging with the world system, don't you know that friendship with the world means enmity with God? Therefore, anyone who chooses... Note the word choose. Anyone who chooses to be a friend of the world becomes an enemy of God. When we choose to adopt what the world says is right, 
when we choose to adopt what the evil world system, system says is success, when we aspire to this is the normal life and this is how you live your life and this is the way, and it's not biblical and it's not godly, be careful that you don't choose to become into agreement with that. To be a friend with the world means to come into agreement with what the world says is right and not necessarily what God says is right. So if you need to understand the times that Daniel and John lived in and wrote in, we'll see that they parallel these very similar things for many of us in our lives and in the times that we're living in as well. Daniel and John, although why we can learn from them, it's very important for us, is that they're members of our historical community. They're brothers and brothers from the past. They lived in the evil world system. Daniel literally lived in Babylon. Babylon that had destroyed his nation, that destroyed the temple, was reinculturating them and oppressing them to stop being Jewish and become Babylonian. Daniel lived there. And we can learn how he succeeded and thrived and how he was a witness for God in that place. In John's time in the seven churches in Asia Minor in Revelation, Rome is starting to oppress the faith, the believers. And they live in these times of change, times that are uncertain, times of turbulence, times of upheaval, times of great uncertainty. And yet they stood and they ran their race and they lived in the evil world empires and they stood for Jesus and made a difference. They were effective witnesses. They lived through it and didn't try and escape from it. And I think that's important for us to hear. Some of us need to live through things with God, with our believing community, and not try to find ways to escape from it. And so it's important for us as believers to understand our own times. Uh, there's a scripture in 1 Chronicles 12.32 where it speaks about the men of Issachar who understood the times and knew what to do. That's a calling on the church as believers today. We need to understand the times that we're living in. We need to know what to do. In David's time, in, in the time in 1 Chronicles 12, they knew, they discerned that they had to support David and not Saul. It was a political thing that they realized they had to do. And some of us need to understand in the spheres of life we're in, where to put our attention and our energy and our effort and where to support in places at this time. And so in Timothy, it speaks about Paul's actually writing about his own day, but he says in the last days, because he believed he was living in the last days as we are, and he talks about how the world will become less good. It will become more evil. The world, there'll be more liars. There'll be more gluttons. Greed will increase. We need to understand the times we're living in. I think it was in this week or in the last two weeks, some of the new census figures were released in South Africa. Stats SA released them. And I read one and I thought, really? 85.2% Christian in our nation. People have identified as that. But then we look at what's actually happening in our nation, levels of corruption, levels of greed, levels of materialism, levels of indifference to poverty, all kinds of injustice. 85% Christian. I wonder if they'd asked that question and said, are you a disciple of Jesus? I wonder what that percentage would have been. Because the call... The only way we change the nation is if we are disciples, not merely a mental assent to a certain set of doctrines or beliefs or however that works. 85. <laughs> so the reality that we live in in South Africa is we have a majority number that ascribes to our faith, but we have a minority voice in the public space. When people look to make policies, they don't come to the church and go, what do you guys want? You're the majority. 
They follow other agendas. They actually follow the evil world system. They let Babylon and Babylonian systems that influence us in the wrong direction form policy. And so we have a majority number, but our minority voice. And we need to understand as believers in this time how we use that minority voice well and how we live and how we deal with this reality and understand how to respond biblically in this time. Because you see, Daniel and John, they were also a minority voice. Christians weren't even 85% in their time. They were probably less than 10% of the population. And yet they could change the world because they followed Jesus and lived after him authentically as well. And so it's very important that we understand the times we live in, that we have to take our faith beyond a Sunday. We have to take our faith beyond just our own personal, private spirituality into the public space so that we can have a voice and we can redeem whichever area God calls you into, whatever policy, whatever area of life you can to speak into those spaces. So we live in a real world and we have real front lines. And those front lines are in Babylon to one degree or another. And there's real answers that God has for every ill and every evil that we might encounter. So let's look at some lessons from Daniel and John specifically. I have seven because it's an anointed number. Um, so that's my introduction, seven-point sermon. Okay. Not really. Uh, I just happened to have seven. I didn't intentionally plan it that way. I just counted it this morning, actually. One of the things we have to remember when, we, when our front line is Babylon or in Babylon, always in our minds, we must remember that God is sovereign and in control. Even when we don't see him working, as we sang, he never stops working. He's sovereign. He's actually in charge of everything, and he's in control. If evil things are happening, God has got a plan, and he's going to work it for good. Evil is not his will, but evil is not in charge. God is in charge. In the chapter I referred to earlier in Daniel chapter 2, Nebuchadnezzar sees this vision of the, of the kingdoms that would come until the Messiah comes, and he goes quite hardcore. Some of this will become relevant a little, relevant a little bit later. But the dream bothers him, and he doesn't know what it means. And so he says to all his wise men and the people who knew how to interpret dreams in his, in his day and time, he says to them, you need to, number one, tell me the dream, and number two, tell me what it means, and if you don't, I'm going to kill you. No pressure. That's worse than your boss saying your deadline is tomorrow. Just want to say. And the, and the, the panic ensues, and eventually he decides he's going to start killing them, killing them. and Daniel and his friends... Uh, form part of this group of wise men and they don't actually even know why they're going to get killed but the guy actually arrives and Daniel works it and he says well just give me a night to pray and to ask God and he goes to his friends and he says you guys better pray now otherwise we're dead tomorrow I'm paraphrasing the Hebrew okay but they pray and Daniel gives uh, God gives Daniel not only the dream but how to interpret it and part of that Daniel says things like this Daniel 2 20 to 22 these won't come up on the screen Daniel 2 20 to 22 Blessed be the name of God forever and ever, to whom belong wisdom and might. God changes the times and the seasons. God removes the kings and he sets up kings. He gives wisdom to the wise and knowledge to those who have understanding. He reveals the deep things. He knows what is hidden in darkness because light dwells in him. Down to verse 44. And in the days after Jesus comes, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that will never be destroyed. Nor shall that kingdom be left to other people. It shall, not be broke, it shall break to pieces all the kingdoms of the world and bring them to an end. But God's kingdom will stand 
forever. God is sovereign and he's controlled. His kingdom, he's in control. His kingdom will stand forever. And so when your front line's Babylon and things look like they're getting worse and worse and worse, don't be deceived. God is still in control. Something else we can learn from Daniel is stand without compromise. Stand without compromise, but I've added, because I'm cautious, be spirit-led in choosing your battles. Stand without compromise, but be spirit-led in choosing your battles. It's interesting, Daniel and some of the cream of the crop kind of guys get taken to Babylon out of Jerusalem before it's finally destroyed. And they get put into this reinculturation program. They get given new names so that they don't associate with anything from the nation of origin. They get taught all, Daniel 1 tells us, all the wisdom of the Babylonians. And so they would have to learn about the Babylonian gods. They would have had to learn about how the worship of those gods took place. They would have had to learn astrology because the Babylonians would begin to reading the stars. They would have learned all kinds of things that Jewish people would have said, this is wrong and don't do. But he picks his battle and he decides, the one I'm going to fight now is about the food. I'm not going to take the meat that's offered because the meat was part of idol worship. And Daniel decided, the one thing I'm going to stand for is I'm not going to be part of worshiping idols. So just give me vegetables. I don't know if he was vegan, but he went there anyway. And if you are, it's fine. Okay. But Daniel decides, and it's interesting, it's not just him alone, it's him and his three friends. They stand together and, they, and God comes through and they end up being better than the others. And Nebuchadnezzar is so impressed with him, he promotes them above the other captives of the time because Daniel picked his battle, he knew which one to pick, and he stood without compromise on that thing. Now, sometimes there'll be a cost to that. It worked out well for Daniel. Didn't work out so well for some other believers through history either. But take a stand, but be spirited. Don't be the one in your front line, if it's a workplace, who's always fighting about where the photocopier is and the temperature of the water in the water cooler. That's not the evil world system. That's just preference. Pick your battles and be spirit-led on where you're going to stand. And when you've decided to stand, then you stand. We also learn from Daniel that it's critically important, and John, to stay connected to a believing community. You have to stay. If your front line is Babylon, if there's evil in your space, you have to stay connected to a believing community. Lone rangers die alone. So in Daniel 1, I mentioned it, Daniel goes to, and his friends, they stand together on the matter of the diet. In Daniel chapter 2, after they've heard this death sentence pronounced, if you don't interpret this dream, you will die. No, if you don't tell me the dream and interpret it, you will die. It actually says he goes to his home and he talks to his friends and he says, we need to pray now. And they all pray together and God speaks to Daniel in verse chapter 2, 17. Daniel returns to his house and explained the matter to his friends and he urged them to plead for mercy to God. We need a believing community around us. Revelation 1 verse 9, John writes and he says, I'm your companion in suffering. He's on exile on the island of Patmos, but he maintains his connection with the believing community, companions in suffering. Standing together on your front line is important. The tougher your front line is, the more evil it is, the more pressure there is to compromise, the more important your brothers and sisters in Christ become, the more important your believing community becomes. Whether that's a small group like you're at Hatfield, one of the kinds of small groups we have is community groups. And you can go each week or once a week or however often you meet and you say, I encountered the devil at work today. 
and you're not talking about your boss. You just mean you encountered evil. Okay, you encountered evil. Can we pray? Well, I've got this really difficult meeting in and there's going to be pressure for me to compromise. But this is my stand. Can we pray? Perhaps in your workspace with other like-minded believers, you, you work in a sphere, politics or teaching or science. And you can pray in that space in small groups where you support each other. Stay connected to a believing community. Come to church or online, it's fine, often as you go. Something else that we see is inherent that's built into Daniel and the book of Revelation, as John writes, is if your front line is Babylon, pray, pray, and pray. Because prayer moves the hand of God. Praying and learning the will of God and what that is helps, helps us come through and break through in those situations. One of my favorite pictures of prayer in the Bible is in Revelation chapter 8. It says that there's incense that goes up before God together with the prayers of the saints. Now, I don't know if you've ever been in a room filled with incense. We're not going to ask you why. But if you've ever been in a room filled with incense, when you walk in, it's kind of smoky, you know? And there's a smell often because incense is usually perfumed. I think I have vast experience with this. I do not know of which I speak. Okay. But if there's incense around you, you know about it. And so there's this picture that around God's throne, the prayers of the saints are surrounding him. He's surrounded by it. And as that incense moves, and so when we pray, it's like incense. It goes up before the throne of God. And then God acts in response to that. We've spoken about the role of prayer with Daniel gets his friends to pray. So when your front line is Babylon, pray, pray, and pray. And trust for God to move his hands. The tougher your front line is, the more important prayer becomes. Something else we learn from Daniel and John is to trust in who God is, irrespective of the outcome. When Babylon is your front line, trust in who God is, irrespective of the outcome. Because sometimes it's not going to work out like you maybe thought, but that doesn't change who God is. Great stories in Daniel chapter 3. Sunday school, anybody? No, but none of you went to Sunday school. What? were your parents doing? Okay. <laughs> Daniel chapter 3, the story of the fiery furnace. Now we all were Sunday school, eh? Now we know. This is not even about Daniel. It's his three friends. And Nebuchadnezzar doesn't seem to have learned his lesson from chapter 2. So he comes into chapter 3 and he builds a statue on a plane. And he says, when the music plays, everybody worships it. And it's, part of it is about worshiping the state, the empire, the greatness of the Babylonian empire. And Daniel's friends, we don't know where Daniel is, it just doesn't tell us, but Daniel's friends are there and they refuse to bow down and their enemies see this. Those who are part of the world system that are got it in for the believers, they see it and they go and tattletale to the king, report them to the king. And they get called in front of the king because he knows them, he knows they're good from chapter one, he knows they're like the best of the best kind of guys. Daniel chapter three, you can make a note, verse 16 to 18. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego replied to the king, King Nebuchadnezzar, we do not need to defend ourselves before you in this matter. Now, I think it's a little cheeky to say to the guys about to kill you or threatening to kill you, but they obviously got like an anointing of boldness or something. We do not need to defend ourselves before you in this matter. If we are thrown into the blazing furnace, the God we serve is able to deliver us from it, and he will deliver us from your majesty's hand. But even if he does not, we want you to know, your majesty, that we will not serve your gods or worship the image of gold that you have set up. 
They knew God, who he was, and trusted him irrespective of the outcome. Now, in this story, in this instance, it's great. An angel appears in the fiery furnace with them. Some of you are in the fiery furnace, and you wonder where God is. He's there with you in the furnace. Book of Revelation chapter 1, it says that God, Jesus walks among the lampstands. The lampstands are the churches, and in the midst of the suffering churches, Jesus stands there. He's our companion in our trials. We trust God irrespective of the outcome. Two more to go. When our front line is Babylon, we have to persevere. Revelation 1 verse 9, again, earlier on, John had written, he said, I'm a companion in suffering. And then he says, and patient endurance that are ours in Christ Jesus. When your front line is Babylon, you need to patiently endure. You keep doing that which is right. You keep on keeping on standing for justice. You keep on trusting God. You need to persevere in that space. Don't give up. And then the last lesson, and a very important one we can learn, it's a little long one, is that when your front line is Babylon, God expects you to overcome. He will make a way. His challenge to you, his admonition to you is to overcome. Jesus writes, Revelation chapter 2 and 3, seven letters to seven churches, to every church, the end of the letter, he says, to him who overcomes. These were churches experiencing, beginning to experience opposition, beginning to experience what it's like to live and to confront the evil world system. And to each church, he says, to him who overcomes. God's will is that we overcome in that space. But how do we overcome? I want to say this. The weapons of our warfare, Paul in Second Corinthians says, are not carnal is the more literal translation. They are not of this world. That does not mean they are not mighty, Paul says, to the pulling down of strongholds and overcoming all kinds of evil. But we do not overcome by fighting in the same way the world fights. If the world fights for position and power and prestige. If the world fights for dominance. If the world fights with violence and cruelty and oppression. Those are not legitimate means for the people of God to overcome. We tried that historically in the Crusades. Didn't go well. There's a whole people group that hates Christianity because we try to fight our war like the world fights wars. How do we fight? How do we overcome? I want to bring us back to that scripture that I read earlier in Ephesians. We overcome when we live a life of love. We conquer. The campaign we wage in our front lines is a campaign of love. We conquer when we love. Revelation 12, 11, John writes, it's a picture much more of the end. And he writes, they triumphed, they overcame by the blood of the lamb, by knowing that Jesus died and paid for our sins and that our eternal destiny is secured. They overcame by the blood of the lamb, the word of their testimony. And this wasn't just what they preached, it was the testimony of their lives. The word there is materials, it means a lot more. So they overcame by the lifestyle testimony. The way they lived for Jesus overcame the evil one. And they did not love their lives so much as to shrink back from death. They weren't scared to stake their stand, even if it caused them to pay the ultimate price. So they lived this life of love. So God's plan is to overcome. Now, as we're talking about the front lines, we've learned some other things just as we talk about the front lines. And I want to suggest that the one of the helpful tools to help us overcome just in our everyday engagement in our front lines and in our workspaces 
are the six M's that we really spoke about last in detail in 2021. And if you can put up that slide, it would be really helpful. Thank you. So how do we lovingly overcome? We model godly character. We model the love of Jesus on our front lines. We model honesty and integrity and truth. We model the character of God. We love well. It will come up later again. If you want to overcome, be like Jesus as best as you can and as you know how. Model godly character. Make good work. You're not going to change your front line if it's a workspace or if it's a family space by being a good parent or being a good cousin or uncle or aunt or grandparent, whatever work might be in your space. Do it well. Don't be the one who has the reputation for always being late, missing deadlines, and then they say, and you want to tell me about Jesus? It's like serving God and embarrassing Jesus. Okay. Make good work as best as you can, with all the skill you can. Learn as much as you can. Give the best work that you can, and you will begin to overcome. Minister grace and love. Grace is when people receive kindness. We receive kindness and love from God that we don't deserve. Be kind to people who don't deserve it. Even that one that you think is the devil. Okay. Be kind. Minister grace and love. That unconditional love and acceptance from God. Standing for truth, but loving the people in the world. In your sphere of influence, mold the culture. Mold how people interact with one another. How they talk to each other in your families, in your office places. Mold the culture by changing the language. Mold the culture by changing, when the discussion gets negative, to turn it to something positive as much as you can. Be a mouthpiece for truth and justice. Where there's something wrong that's in your sphere of influence to change or address, speak into it. Work at it. Be consistent. And always, as Paul said, there's many opportunities. Be a messenger of the gospel. How do you stay calm when that guy screams at you? How do you keep loving? Why are you always so kind? Well, let me tell you what it means for me to follow Jesus. These six M's are part of, if we build this into our lifestyles, if we build this into the way that we live, they will help us overcome. What we see in Daniel and John is that God comes close to people whose front line is Babylon, and he reveals himself to them in ways that they need for their time and their space. And we can have the full expectation that God will do the same for us. Worship team, you guys can join me. I want to come back to the text that I read this morning in Ephesians 5. When Babylon is your front line, how do you respond? In various ways, some of them I've just listed. But the key thing to remember is you live a life of love. Ephesians 5, I want to read those scriptures again. Uh, verse 1 and 2, follow God's example, model godly character. Therefore, as dearly loved children, live a life of love, just as Jesus loved us and gave himself up for us as a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. Be very careful, verse 15, how you live, not as unwise, but as wise, making the most of every opportunity because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the Lord's will is. When your front line is Babylon, live a life of love. Live a life of testimony to Jesus. Can I give you some homework? Who's up for homework from church? None of the kids put up their hands. Okay. We didn't have time to speak to, into this this morning, but I want to give you two passages of Scripture that perhaps if you have, as you have time in the week, just to read on and reflect on, particularly in the context of 
in your front line, how do you live a life of love? The one, they're both in the book of 1 Peter. 1 Peter chapter 3, verse, 18 to, verse 8 to 17, sorry. 1 Peter 3, 8 to 17. Read that as you go into the week with, how do I live in this world when my front line is hostile, when my front line is oppositional to me? And the second one is in 1 Peter chapter 2, uh, from verse 11. You can just read the rest of the chapter because you're a higher grade Christian. Okay, 1 Peter chapter 2 from verse 11 onwards. And if you read those, you'll see that there's a very clear pattern that Peter also writes. That when you're living in Babylon, there's a way you respond. You live this life of love. It gives some key elements of that. But as we end this morning, I'm reminded about Jesus. One day Jesus was walking past some men. He did it a few times. And he said, come follow me. They were busy with their everyday lives, doing their everythings, everyday things. That had some contact with Jesus previously. We understand that from the Gospel of John. But he walks for some of them along the shore of the Galilee. And he says, come follow me. A rich young man who was successful in, all, in everything that the world system said counted as successful. In this sense, he was a friend of the world. And he comes to Jesus and he says, what must I do to inherit eternal life? What must I do to be a disciple? What must I do to be a follower your follower, follower of Christ. And Jesus says, come, follow me. And I wonder this morning if, no matter how long you follow Jesus, no matter how deep your discipleship journey is, I wonder if Jesus isn't walking past each of our lives, my life included, our lives today, and saying, come, follow me. The world is evil. Doesn't look like it's getting better. And Jesus says, come, follow me. Come live a life of love. Come live a life of faith beyond Sunday. Come live a life that's beyond just your own personal spirituality. Come live a life of love where you influence the world and shape it around you. Where you stand in opposition to Babylon by loving so thoroughly and so deeply and so well. So can I invite you to stand as we conclude the service? May I pray? Jesus, we hear these words afresh this morning. The words that you said to people thousands of years ago that have been recorded to us and get repeated through the ages. We hear the words, come follow me. And I pray for those listening on the radio, those watching online, and those in the room this morning, and anyone who may hear this message that they will hear these words, come follow me. Whatever that means for you, what is the next step in following Jesus for you? For some, it may be that you decide that you're going to start following Jesus today. If that's you, we're going to have some prayer at the end. Just come to one of the leaders or the pastors in front and just ask them, pray for me, I want to follow Jesus. No matter where you are on your faith journey or discipleship journey, the invitation this morning is to come deeper. So, Father, I want to pray for every brother, every sister in this room this morning. Whatever their front line, you're there with them. You're in their midst. You know what we each face every day on every single front line we find ourselves in. We're surrounded by a hostile, evil world system, as you know, Jesus. 
But yet you've told us, you do not want us to be taken out of the world. You want us to be in it, but not of it. And so help us by the power of your Spirit. Refresh us and empower us by the power of your Spirit to live for you. To follow you authentically and genuinely and faithfully on every single front line we have. So Jesus, as you say, come follow me. In my heart, and I believe in many other hearts, I respond and say, I will follow. I will follow. And I pray this for each person, that we would follow you faithfully this time tomorrow, in the week ahead, in the month ahead, each day of our lives. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen and amen. If you do want prayer for any reason, the prayer team will be up here. Please come. We'd love to pray for you. If you're new and you want to know a little bit more, please meet um, Ben in the Connect Lounge on front. If you're online, please email your prayer request to pray for me at Hatfield. God bless you as you go this week. May you know his presence in every place and space, in every front line that you find yourself in. Amen and amen.